I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 4. And as you do, uh, I just want to comment as we get started on the concept of beauty. Now, as you consider the concept of beauty in our world, it's often reduced to what? To the external aspects of appearance. That's the emphasis around us, isn't it? And all throughout history, every society has adopted different standards of beauty. They vary to some degree or other, but there is always some kind of social expectation or standard of what beauty is. Today in our culture, sadly, as the morality declines, the emphasis is placed exclusively on what is fashionable and actually what is sensual. But the question that we want to contemplate for just a moment is what does Scripture define as true beauty? When my girls were young, and even to this day, we'd have a little conversation on a regular basis, and I would ask my daughters, what makes a girl truly beautiful? And the answer that we would rehearse together is her heart. It's her heart that makes her beautiful. I wanted to set into my girls' understanding from a very young age that what really counts, the standard of beauty that is most important is God's standard of beauty. We know that physical beauty, well, it's something that we might enjoy. It's something that fades just as all other things fade with regard to the externals. But what's the opposite of that from a spiritual perspective is the heart itself as it matures in Christ actually grows to become more and more beautiful. And it's actually a heart that's demonstrated in the context of even the challenges and trials of life where that beauty finds expression externally as a woman serves and ministers to others. Today we celebrate Mother's Day, don't we? And rightly so. We take the day to acknowledge those who love and serve and care for our families. And we trust that today will be a really wonderful day where you receive the expressions of gratitude and appreciation for all that you do. But contemplating this concept of of beauty for a moment, I do remember the first moment I saw my wife, and there's no doubt about it. My first impression was she was absolutely beautiful, and I was attracted to her from the outset. But you know, it was a few weeks into our dating relationship where I was exposed to her inner beauty the inner beauty of a, a godly woman. We sat down and had a conversation. We were both a little bit older. I graduated from seminary. And I believe that God was calling me to serve him in the mission field and was very open and interested in going into even a restricted access country. This was before the, the wall came down, the end of the Cold War. And that was a part of the world that I was interested in serving in. And I remember sitting down with her and just saying to her, you know, before this relationship goes much further... You need to know what I believe God's called me to do. And we need to talk about your own willingness to follow that path if this relationship develops. Well, I could hardly complete my sentence before she offered her response without hesitation. And she said, you know what? Wherever God calls us, that's where I want to be. And if that's with you, we'll be in the middle of God's will. And that lack of any hesitation to trust and follow God has been true of my wife all these years. 
And it was in that moment when she just responded. She didn't have to think about it. She didn't have, it, have to hesitate. It was because God had already prepared her heart. She had her pri- priorities right. She had her eternal perspective right. She had a, the kingdom in mind. She did have the benefit of growing up as a child of missionaries, and so she'd watched her parents model that and stepping out in faith. <clears throat> and so she was following that example. And to me it really was even more beautiful than what I enjoyed in her appearance. And I began to understand how important the heart is, even the heart of one you love, because if the heart's not truly beautiful, the outside really begins to fail physically in one sense, but it also diminishes in your attraction to that person. I also remember the day when we were alone in the sanctuary of the church we got married in, and she came in those back doors, and it was the first time for me to see her. And my breath did kind of catch uh, in my throat, and I looked at her uh, in all of her wedding finery. And I remember that day. I'll never forget it. And we enjoyed our wedding ceremony. But, you know, it's been the moments throughout 31 years of marriage where we've shared life together, the highs and lows, challenges, the moments of confusion and uncertainty about our future, the moments of trusting the Lord for things that we long for in our heart that we believed would be pleasing to Him, but He hadn't provided for us yet. One of those was the occasion for us where we had to wait eight years before we could begin our family. And those were years of of real seeking the Lord and asking him, and and resigning ourselves to his will and his purpose for us. And it was in those times of prayer with my wife and those conversations where what our heart longed for, we continued to offer up to him, that I saw her willingness to trust the Lord from her heart. And I saw God's work not only in her life, but mine. Eventually, he did allow us to conceive and start our family But our path was not maybe the typical path. After having two biological children, he led us to adopt. And if you want to talk about a journey of learning to trust and wait on the Lord, that adoption process for Hope, who's here this morning, it was 20, I'm sorry, it was 18 months. And uh, we both remember the day the doorbell rang and uh, the FedEx guy delivered a packet from China. And it was the first photo that we had ever seen. (laughs) It came from China. It was the first photo that we had ever seen of hope. And we just knew in that moment that all those months of praying, God was at work, making decisions that we had no control over to bring to us the very daughter that he had ordained from eternity past would be our own. And I watched my wife just wait. Not just wait, there were an enormous amount of paperwork and things that she had to do, and she worked very hard, and it was work done in faith because she was going to trust God to provide. Well, we learned from that experience and decided to adopt two more kids, and it took 22 months that time, multiple trips to Uganda, occasions where she flew that long trip, takes about two days to get there, to keep a, a, a court appointment, And as soon as she arrived, she was notified by the court that they were going to postpone the appointment for a couple months. And so she flew home, heartbroken, but having had the opportunity to actually hold Paul and Olivia in her arms for the first time. 
It was in those moments that I saw my wife's inner beauty shine forth. It was in the moments of doubt and uncertainty, the testing of her faith, the hard work and labor that she was doing before they were even in our home to provide for them and make it possible that we could adopt them. Well, certainly after the kids come, right? There's a lot of wiping of tears and caring for skin knees and making decisions about schooling options and planning birthday parties and baking specialized birthday cakes according to their interest. But it's the teaching and training them, it's the discipling them, it's the sacrificial service that comes in every trip to the grocery store, every meal that's planned and prepared, every table that's set, every dish that's cleaned afterwards. And then, of course, there's those moments, as much as you love your kids, they're growing and they're immature. So it's those moments where you are arbitrating conflict, dealing with discipline, and the disobedience. And as I get older, it's not so much that as often, but sometimes it's just forgetting to express gratitude or appreciation for the long hours and sacrificial efforts. And so continue to serve in those moments are the moments when they're most like Christ. And there's no recognition. There's not necessarily words of appreciation. Matter of fact, there's a lot of expectation and assumptions being made. And so what motivates a godly mom to continue to love her kids and serve her husband? It has to be something much more than just the externals. It has to be something that comes from the heart. And recently I've watched my wife demonstrate a beautiful heart in the way that she has cared for her own mother. Her mother's a godly woman that we love dearly. We're grateful to be able to serve our parents, but the last two weeks, my father-in-law has been in the hospital. My mother-in-law is now in a wheelchair and can't be left alone, so it's my wife's loving service to her by sleeping on her couch, being available to her throughout the night, taking her to the hospital every day, making sure, talking to the doctors, and all the details are being addressed and covered, where again, that heart that's beautiful and like Christ finds expression Now I'm talking about my wife, and I've probably embarrassed her, and I'm sorry for that because she wouldn't want me to mention all these things. But I'm sure every husband and father, as you listen to me, start rehearsing those snapshots in your own life of all those moments where, yes, there's that beauty on the outside and that attraction to your spouse, but it's really in the daily moments, isn't it? Where the heart of a godly woman finds expression that provides for us in our homes a picture of Christ on a regular basis. And ultimately, that's what's important, is the work that God's going to do in growing and perfecting us in godliness. There are times, more often than not, as Lisa and I are getting dressed in the morning and looking in the mirror, and we note the few more gray hairs, or the loss of hair for me, a few more wrinkles, a few more aches and pains, And we know that, in one sense, the outside is fading. But when you share life together over the years, what you begin to see is the enhancement of beauty and godliness in a woman as she trusts the Lord throughout the seasons of life. It's true, guys, isn't it? Our wives become more beautiful to us. We treasure them more. And we're thankful for the things that we've learned from them and the things that we've gone through with them. And they've stayed by our side 
and they've served along our sides and have done so much. See, Scripture tells us exactly what real beauty is. And it's a beauty that's found in the heart. 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter reminds us by writing, speaking to women in the church there, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. What does he say? It's the adorning of the hidden person of the heart where real beauty is demonstrated in a spirit of gentleness and quiet. You know, it's interesting. If you go to Matthew chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, you meet Christ offering for those who are weary to come to him it says in verse 28, Come, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and listen to what he says. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Peter heard those words. Christ identifying himself that my own heart is one that is gentle and humble one who is committed to loving and serving. And I'm sure as he authored the words in 1 Peter chapter 4 where he looks at a godly wife, in the context there, she's living with an unbelieving husband, hoping to win him to Christ. And he's saying, as you demonstrate the very heart of Christ before your husband, you're a grace to him. You're a testimony to him. Now, lest you guys think it's just a matter of the ladies in the room, and that the heart is not an essential matter for all of us, let me remind you that in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, that David himself, the great king, was recognized as being what? A man after God's own heart. See, it's the heart that God is most concerned about, is the redeemed and renewed heart which has the ability to transform into the very image of Christ. And it is the heart which Christ himself says is the true source of all godliness. And therefore, Christian men and Christian women, not just those who are married, but those who are single, young or old, that are to be most concerned and to keep as their first priority the condition of their heart. And so we're going to talk this morning about keeping the heart. It applies to all of us. I've entitled the sermon, Keeping the Heart, and it comes from the text that I had you turn to, Proverbs 4, verse 23. Here Solomon writes, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Here it's a father speaking words of wisdom to his son. And these words are critical for us to take into our own hearts and consider this morning, what does it mean to keep your heart? If it's that important, how do you go about that? And what is it that we're to pursue in doing so? Keeping your heart with all vigilance focuses on this idea of keeping. This is the instruction to us. And in the Hebrew, the word is actually an emphatic. It means keep on keeping. There's that sense of, of urgency and priority to this task, 
of keeping the heart. The word keeping itself means to, to guard, to watch over, to pay careful attention to, to protect. And so what Solomon is saying to his son at an early age, the most important thing you can do is constantly protect your heart. He goes on to say what? It's from the heart which flow the springs of life. Springs which flow, this is the idea of a river, right? Or a stream that finds its source in what is good and right and pure. And as it flows forth out of the heart, it governs your life. The life here is the reference, is in reference to the life we live. It's the truth in practice. It's living a wise life. And we cannot live a wise life or a life that's in line with godliness and God's principles and his character if the source isn't pure, if the source isn't governed by the truth of God. And so in this simple little verse, we find the aid for what we need to navigate life in this difficult and sinful world. We have to understand our hearts. We have to understand how God works in our hearts. And we have to be committed in this vigilant way to keep our hearts. As you know, I love the Puritans, and so you're not going to escape today from a few quotes from them. So I've been reading a book recently by John Flavel. I've mentioned him in the past, a 17th century English Puritan. And he adopted our text as a special written discourse due to what he felt in his pastoral ministry was one of the most critical and important things he could exhort his flock towards. And he believed it was the heart, and it's being shaped by the Scriptures and and the work of God through His Spirit that would aid the believer to fulfill God's purpose for them. If you're interested in reading the full discourse, it's in two forms, titled Keeping the Heart, a discourse on Proverbs 4.23. Just remember John Flavel in the heart. You can look it up and find it. There's another book by Flavel. It's a more extended collection of his writings and sermons. It's entitled All Things Made New. And the chapter in here is, comes from this discourse, Keeping the Heart. This is available in the book shack if you want to take a look at it. All Things Made New by John Flavel. Listen to what he says. He says, for as long as the heart is not set right by grace, as to a habitual frame, no means can keep it right with God. Self is the spring of the unrenewed heart, which biases and moves it in all its designs and actions, and as long as it is so, it is impossible that any external means should keep it with God. What's he saying? He's saying, if the heart isn't governed by God's grace or his work of grace in our hearts, then we have no ability to master our hearts, to control our hearts. They'll be ruled by self, selfish ambition and pride and all that comes with it. And he says, if you allow your heart to be led by that power and that source, it will be impossible to keep it for God. And he confronts us with the reality What's going to rule our hearts? Will it be the truth and God? Or is it going to be selfish, sinful, worldly influences? And so the keeping of our hearts demands for us 
a determination and a choice. We can't have it both ways. And growing in Christ in many ways is this simple idea. It's bringing all things under the lordship of Christ, beginning with our hearts. It begins in our hearts. It is the source of life. And so this morning I want to consider four reasons why keeping the heart is of such necessity and value to the believer. Now, I'm going to warn you that at the end I'm going to put my email address up like I often do because we're going to do a survey of Scripture. You will not be able to write down every verse, okay? So for those of you I'm prone to frustrate, forgive me. (laughs) What I want you to do is I want you to see how pervasive this theme is in Scripture. I want you to connect some dots, some famous people in the Old Testament, some passages in the New Testament. I want you to see how this flows throughout Scripture so that you can see the steady stream of this truth and principle. And some texts will come alive to you once you understand them as they relate to this principle. So don't worry, I'll send you all my notes if you like them. You can just email me at the end. But if you're determined, please feel free to take notes. Uh, I've got four major points, and I'll give you the, the scripture verses underneath them, okay? All right, point number one. The heart is where God looks. Where does man look? On the outside. We've already addressed that, right? The world looks at the outside and the the external and the appearance. And so you consider David, right? We said he was a man after God's own heart. Then we shouldn't be surprised when Samuel is sent to Jesse to select from his group of sons a king for Israel. And we read in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, this. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Of course, speaking of Saul. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God sent Samuel that day to discern of all the sons of Jesse, which is the one who has a heart after God? Who is the one that God knows and has confidence in the work he's doing in their heart? It was David. God saw David's heart. He wanted Samuel to discern the issue of the heart by looking past the appearance and making a decision about who would be anointed as king. So keep that in mind. David, a man after God's own heart. Samuel, given that standard in the selection of a king. And then as we witness David's own testimony in his own writings, listen to what he writes in the psalm. Psalm 7-9. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. Often throughout David's writings, he brings it back to the heart. And he affirms that it's God who looks on the heart. Psalm 26, 2. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Only God can do that because he can see the the reality of the true inward condition. David writes in Psalm 44, verse 20. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Or in Psalm 139, verse 23, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And even on David's deathbed, as he called Solomon to him, 
Here's what David whispers in Solomon's ear. He says, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. You think David understood what was important? His entire life. From a young age, being a man who himself was characterized as having a heart after God, to his actual deathbed and his writings in between. He affirmed this great truth that the heart is where God looks. Well, it was a truth principle that he passed on to his son Solomon. And on that famous day that Solomon, after having built the temple, stands before the entire nation and dedicates it in a prayer of solemn dedication, we see in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 38 and following, these words, Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands towards this house, then you, O God, hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all the ways. For you, only you, know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Did Solomon get it? Yeah. His father passed that principle on to him. And he's the author of our text this morning, Proverbs chapter 4. He learned that from his father. Well, that isn't the only proverb that refers to this truth. In Proverbs 21, verse 2, Solomon writes, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Later in Proverbs 24, verse 12, he says, Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their hearts devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. And here he's providing a contrast between the condition of the wise man and the foolish man, the godly man and the worldly man. Who and what rules their hearts? Violence, greed, pride. And he makes a contrast between the condition of the hearts. Well, even later the prophets make reference to this. Jeremiah, in speaking to God's own assessment of Israel's fidelity, says in Jeremiah 17, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. This was God's litmus test for obedience and faithfulness for the nation. He knew when their hearts had been turned away to the false gods and idols of the Gentile nations. God looks on the heart. We see this in the New Testament in Christ's ministry, and we'll look at it even further in a moment. But in Matthew chapter 9, verse 4, Christ makes this statement. In confronting the Pharisees, he says, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Christ just looks right through them. He knows what's going on because God looks on the heart. God always looks on the heart. Christ made a similar statement in Luke 16, verse 15. He says, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men speaking of the external presentation of their religious practices. But God knows your hearts, he says. You look good to everybody else, but God knows. Because that's where God looks. Later in the book of Acts, needing to replace Judas as a disciple, in Acts chapter 1, verse 24, 
we read that in choosing them a new disciple, they pray and they say, you, Lord, who knows the hearts of all men. They ask the Lord to guide them to who should replace Judas to join the ranks, seeking a godly man to join them. Later in Acts chapter 15, as Paul is before the Jerusalem council and making a defense for why the Gentiles should be included in the church, he makes an argument that under the new covenant and the work of Christ on all men's behalf, both Jew and Gentile, there's no distinction. And he says, God doesn't look on the outside, Jew or Gentile. He says, and God who knows the heart testified to them, the Gentiles, through the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And here he's speaking about the ongoing application of the work of the gospel in the hearts of men, Jew or Gentile. doesn't matter on the outside, their ethnicity, their race, their culture, their background. It's the condition of whether or not they've received the gospel message and have surrendered themselves to the Lord. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul's looking forward and saying, when Christ returns and all men will be judged, what is on the inside will be exposed and revealed. And those who are evil and vile and rebellious and sinful who've rejected him will be held accountable to the reality. Not their religious practices, not their claims to know Christ. It's the reality of the condition of their heart. And lastly, we read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. And what John's saying is those of us who yield to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, who repent and strive to demonstrate the love of Christ towards others, God knows the authenticity of our salvation. We're not yet fully perfected, but he knows that we are his, that he's going to complete that work, and we can rest in a confidence that it's not about performance or perfection, it's about the work of Christ applied to our own hearts. And so all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, we see this principle affirmed. God looks on the heart. Amen? All right. Point number two. The heart, then, is where God works. And aren't you glad for that? The heart is where God works. Consider this. This is where the Holy Spirit works in an active way, to impress the truth upon us, to convict us, to grant us understanding. He opens our eyes that we might comprehend. He stirs up our affections for obedience and holiness. He comforts us in our sorrows. He grants us peace and gifts to us faith and hope and joy. Because it's in the heart where the truth must come to bear through the active work of the Holy Spirit leading us in growth and producing change and repentance. It's because the Spirit knows our hearts, this is even how he prays on our behalf. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 27. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. What Paul's saying here is because of the indwelling and abiding presence of the Holy Spirit who knows you so intimately that when he prays, his prayer request for your good and God's purposes in your life, even when you don't understand your heart, when you don't even understand what you need, the Spirit does. And when he prays for your greatest need, that powerful work in our hearts, God knows the Spirit's mind who knows our hearts. That's the prayer that's presented to our Father, and that's the prayer our Father wants to answer through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Not only is it where the Spirit works, it's where the Word of God actively works. This verse is familiar to you, but Hebrews 4, verses 12 through 13 tells us, For the Word of God is living, and it's active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and what? discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Where does that double-edged sword strike? To the heart. That's exactly where it has to do its work. We know it's the testimony of God's word that, according to Romans chapter 12, that we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, by that internal work. So, let's consider a definition of the heart, biblically. The heart is the center of man's inward life. It includes the emotions, the reason, and the will. Scripture regards the heart as the divine sphere, I'm sorry, the sphere of divine influence. If you look at the biblical terms in these texts, the Hebrew word, leb, sometimes refers to a literal heart. But most often it's used figuratively to refer to what can be termed the control center of our beating. What rules and dominates our attitudes, our actions, our behaviors. The word we see in the New Testament, cardia, the Greek, almost never refers to the physical organ, but is always used in this figurative fashion to refer to the seat and center of human life. John MacArthur helps us here in addressing the idea of the heart. He says, The heart commonly refers to the mind as the center of thinking and reason, but it also includes the emotions, the will, and thus the whole inner being. The heart is the depository of all wisdom and the source of whatever affects speech, sight, and conduct. Maybe a model will help you. This is a familiar model to some, if you can see that. It's often used in the biblical counseling world, to try to help a counselee understand that just focusing on the externals and the behavior and trying to change is not enough. For the believer, it's the work in the heart. And here you can see the heart representing the affections or desires, the will and the emotions, right? If you see the dotted line there, there's a distinction made between the outer man and the inner man. And there's an arrow being pointed towards behavior, but where does it emerge from? It emerged from the heart. So it's what occurs in the heart that produces our behavior, what we actually believe, not just profess, but what we truly believe. In these verses you'll see wrapped around this little model are many of the verses that we'll touch on today, not all of them. But that's the idea, isn't it? 
It's from the heart, right? That our actions are determined. And that's not new to you. I'm sure you've heard that in your Christian life. We're just focusing on it with a little bit more of an intensive look, but, but seeing how pervasive it's addressed in Scripture. Many of you would be familiar with Jonathan Edwards' book, Religious Affections. He called the heart the seat of our affections. And in this book, he describes theologically how the spiritual longings of the heart are the essence of actually knowing and walking with God. It's a great book to pick up and to read. Read it patiently and slowly and carefully. But Jonathan Edwards, who was noted as maybe the greatest theologian of North America in our own history, is saying in that book, the most critical thing that we have to deal with is the affections of our heart. If we're to focus, though, just on behavior and not the heart, we might achieve some temporal goals. Anybody tried that and been successful? Yeah, for about maybe 20 minutes. Okay, we all are prone to do it. I'm going to get my life in order. I'm going to get it organized. I'm going to quit that addiction or that pattern of living. Or... And so we kind of will ourselves to aim ourselves in the right direction. It's not that that effort isn't necessary, but without first dealing with the root issue. Why do I pursue those things? What about that sinful addiction do I actually believe is more satisfying than Christ? Because until you deal with that, you're never going to have success in the long run. Because that idol in your heart, that wrong way of thinking, is going to undermine you every single time. What we have to deal with is the heart, and then the behavior adapts to our new affections, our new way of thinking. So we have to deal with the inner man. talking here about how God works in the heart. Flavel again. Sorry, got ahead. Flavel says this. I, I don't think I have the slide up there. Sorry, I may have gotten them backwards. There we go. To keep the heart is to preserve it carefully from sin, which disorders it, and maintain that spiritual and gracious frame which fits it for a life of communion with God. I love that because the focus isn't just self-oriented. I got to fix myself. So I'm going to bring all these biblical principles to play. And then once I get it all under control, I'm a good person. I'm loving. He's saying, no, really what's driving all of this is this life of communion with God. You get your heart right so you can enjoy him. And when you enjoy him first and he satisfies you and you delight in him, then all those other things that are temptations begin to pale in their attraction to you. And so it's not just knowing biblical principles, but it's contending with who do you love? What do you really love? And where are your affections? Well, in the Old Testament, we see this is where God works. I'll give you some examples. Deuteronomy 10, 12. Here at the formation of the nation, we read, Now Israel, what does the Lord require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes. Or we could go back to the Psalms, particularly Psalm 119. Eleven times in Psalm 119, the heart is mentioned as the place where truth is applied and worked out. 
Verse 11 particularly says, Your word have I hid in my heart, what? That I might not sin against you. Where's the focus? Get the heart right. Then you deal with the sin. Okay? If you just try to deal with the sin without dealing with the heart, you miss the real key to your success. Really the real key to you, the power of God at work. Well, in the New Testament, Christ makes the same point. It has to be in the transformation of the heart. He says in Matthew chapter 15, Speaking again to the Pharisees, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person, right? He continues on, verse 17. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach? and is expelled. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. He says in Luke chapter (laughs) 6, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now, we've heard that many times. We probably have tried to teach that to our kids. But it's no less true and important, this idea that it's the heart where God works. Flavel again says, Oh, then how important a duty is that which is contained in the following proposition. The keeping and right managing of the heart in every condition is the great business of a Christian life. So, it's in the heart that God works. Point number three, the heart is where God is worshipped. The heart is where God is worshipped. And you can turn with me in Matthew chapter 5. Actually, we'll be looking at chapter 6, but Matthew chapter 5, verse uh, beginning there in the first verses, is the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ begins with these Beatitudes describing the renewed and transformed condition of true disciples. Something's changed. Now they're poor in spirit. means they're humble of heart. Right? They, they mourn over their sin. Their heart is expressing a conviction and a sorrow over their sinfulness. In verse 5, blessed are the gentle, he says, for they shall inherit the earth. He's dealing with the condition of their own posture and attitude towards others. It's been humble, not one of pride, but gentleness. The attitude given to us in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Speaking of the, the new appetite in the inner man of a true disciple. You long for what is good and true and right. Next he says, blessed are the merciful. Right? And then we come to verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Next he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Meaning that now there's this active outworking of what you've experienced of having peace made between you and God. You want to see peace made between men. And he says, this transformed heart expressed in these beatitudes enables you then 
to face persecution, to stand the storms and trials of life, the hostility that will come your way because you're anchored, not in your circumstances, but in your love for Christ, your confidence in Christ and what he's done for you, and your hope is in him. And therefore, he says in verse 12, these things are true of of the true disciple, and you can rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. That's our hope, isn't it? It's not based in the externals. It's not based on us trying to keep up our appearances so we're attractive to the world or we meet their standards. That's an impossible end. But when the heart has been transformed by God, that will endure and only be perfected for all eternity, that is why we can have joy. And so we lift our eyes off our present realities, our brokenness, struggles around us, and we find our joy anchored in God. So this is where God is worshipped out of that heart, enjoyed and delighted in. But as Matthew continues um, uh, accounting the sermon here for us, as Christ explains a distinction between those who are pursuing religion externally and those who are pursuing it out of a heart that really is given to worship and glorifying God, he begins to make contrasts. And we see this in chapter 5, beginning in verses 21 and following. And, And we see he says to them, such as in verse 21, you shall not commit murder. We know that. That's the Old Testament law. But what does he do for the believer? He says, it's not just not committing murder. It's making sure you don't what? Hate that person. Because it's the hatred that leads to the act of murder. He's saying, look, you've got to deal with the heart. He's really explicit, actually, as we come to verse 27. He says, you, sh- you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, stripping the Pharisees of saying, it doesn't matter if you just keep the external law, but in your heart you hate one another, you lust after women, you're violating the principle of the law. Of course, we know because God looks at the heart, he can judge the thoughts and intentions of all men and discern who's true and who's not. And so if you read those verses, you begin to see very clearly there's a comparison between the external and the internal. And then you come to chapter 6. In verses 1 through 18, what happens is he begins to use a particular point of contrast between a Pharisee and a publican. He talks about how one worships and how the other one worships. One is seeking the acclaim and praise of men by praying publicly, fasting, in a fashion that draws everybody's attention. He gives in a lavish way that draws the honor and respect and awe of others. But what does the publican do? He goes to his prayer closet. He fasts in quiet. He gives in that wonderful statement to describe. He doesn't even know what the right hand is giving from the left hand. That's the humility of a true follower of Christ who's committed to worshiping and honoring God. Now, with that as our context, we come to verse 19 of chapter 6, where Christ goes on to say, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, 
there will your heart be also. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's our principle. What do you truly love? Or really, what do you truly worship? Is it that which is eternal? Or is it that which is external and temporal? And so Christ continues then to say this. If you look at verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. What's Christ saying? If you're a true disciple, you need to determine what your heart worships. Can't do both. And so the idea of keeping our hearts is essential to the Christian life. What do we really love? What do we really worship? Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 25 is that famous text where a confrontation is made, a, a, a comparison is made to those who are truly worshipers of God or those who are not. And we've heard our pastor preach on this text and, and the effects of it being worked out in our own society in recent years. But listen again to what Paul writes. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What's the condition of the unredeemed person? It's a heart that is ruled by darkness, who rejects God. And the expression of that is a rejection of worshiping him. But not so for you and I. We who have been redeemed have been given the ability to love and to worship him with our whole heart. All right, let's see if I can get that slide up. There it is. Favel says, to keep the heart necessarily supposes a previous work of sanctification, which has set the heart right by giving it a new spiritual bent and inclination. That's what Paul's saying in his contrast in Romans 1. They haven't experienced the work of grace and sanctification in their hearts, but we have. And so to keep the heart has to begin with a recognition, are you truly saved? Have you really embraced the gospel? Have you repented of the idolatry of your heart, of self and pride? And if you have, then the keeping of the heart is based on this truth. It presupposes that there has been a work of sanctification and God is going to set your heart right and he's going to aid you in this new spiritual bent and inclination. Well, number four, the heart is not only where God is worshipped, it's where God is enjoyed. And I just want you to listen to the promises of God again from the Psalms. Psalm 37, 4 tells us, delight in the Lord and he will give you what? The desires of your heart. Well, if you're delighting in the Lord, guess what your desires are for? For him and for what pleases him and what glorifies him. So drawing near to him and rehearsing the truths of who he is and his promises to you and finding great comfort and joy in what you know to be true about God will produce in your heart desires that are in accord with what pleases him. That's how you do heart work so that you come to enjoy and to delight in him. Psalm 4, 
verse 6 through 8 says, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. What was the great time of celebration in the annual year of Israel? It was the harvest time because their needs are being met, right? It means that they don't have to live in fear and insecurity, but, but they've got the grain and the grapes to meet their needs. And he's saying, as joyful as that is, you put more joy in my heart than all of that. That's the power of God at work in our hearts, that we might have joy and enjoy him. Psalm 16, verse 1 and following, you read, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. What a wonderful description. Is it not on our beds at night sometimes that our minds are flooded with anxious thoughts, fears about the future, concerns about others, needs that we have? And here again, David, doing that heart work, says, I actually reflect on God and his counsel and I set the Lord before me. And because he's right there, as though he's right by my right hand, I will not be shaken. And my heart will be glad. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, and my whole being rejoices, and I am secure. Don't you want to live that way? You can, if you keep the heart. He says in Psalm 27, verse 1, though an army encamp against me, and here he is facing the, the threat of the enemy. Though an army encamp against me, think about that. My heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, I will be confident. And don't you want to have that kind of boldness and confidence and courage facing whatever the enemy throws your way? If we follow David's example, it can be ours. Then David writes this in Psalm 36. How precious is your steadfast love of God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of delights. For with you is a fountain of life. And in your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who love you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. He always brings it back to the application of these great truths to the heart. we go back to the Old Testament and we read again in Deuteronomy chapter 4, the promise that God made to his people. Listen to what he writes in verse 24. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you'll be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. He's telling them if they're not faithful to him. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. See, there are occasions of life where we wander away. We yield to temptations. We believe the lies of what will satisfy And we journey down those dead-end paths. But as we awaken from our foolishness, his promise is a promise that if you return to me, If you seek me, you will find me. If you search after me, I will make myself known to you. But what he says is, 
Seek me with all your heart and with all your soul. Not half-heartedly, not occasionally, but be wholly devoted to me. Does our God not deserve our whole devotion to him? And does he not promise the rich blessings and privileges that flow out of that devotion? Well, I told you we were going to survey the scripture. I hope you got a sense of how important and how pervasive this theme is in scripture. God looks in the heart. He works in the heart. It's from the heart that we worship. And ultimately, it's in the heart where God is enjoyed. All right, let me bring it home here. One last quote from our friend John Flavel. It's not just the implications for us personally, but it's the implications of this great truth on God's people. Flavel first writes, if the people of God would diligently keep their hearts, their communion with each other would be unspeakable, more inviting, and more profitable than what's on the screen. It is the fellowship which the people of God have with the Father and the Son that kindles the desires of others to have communion with them. I tell you, if saints would be persuaded to spend more time and take more pains about their hearts, there would be such a divine excellence in their conversations that others would account it no small privilege to be with or near them. See, it's the pride, passion, and worldliness of our hearts that has spoiled Christian fellowship. If Christians would study their hearts more and keep them better, the beauty and glory of communion would be restored. So it's not just for you. It's for the body of Christ that we need to keep our hearts. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your word. It produces for us the right direction that we're to pursue in our daily lives. It provides for us not a sense of duty, but a sense of great hope and expectation that, one, you saved us to know us in such a way, and you want us to know you in a deeper, more personal way. Lord, we're a well-taught group of people. We know your word. But actually keeping the heart on a daily basis, applying those truths in such a way that it affects the, the change and transformation through the power of your spirit, we yield ourselves to you. We ask that you would continue to do this and and begin to give us victories over those things that we falsely believe will, will bring the joy and satisfaction that we long for. The applause and acclaim and acceptance of men, their love, which is often at risk or conditional, but not true with you. Your loving kindness endures forever. So let the truths that we know be set more deeply in our hearts, that it might produce in our attitudes, our speech, our actions, our priorities, that which is most like our Lord, and that he might be glorified as being seen more in me. And we ask this in his name. Amen.